my husband and I have really adopted him. He doesn't do Oxy anymore. His whole life was transformed by meeting me. He said it was the best thing that's ever happened to his life. Oh my God. I'm his buddy. He's like healed tremendously, like just from meeting us. He's gotten a second chance in life. I mean, he has a family. Who am I? 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 This is Who Am I Really? A podcast about adoptees that have located and connected with their biological family members. I'm Damon Davis, and today you're going to meet Julie, who called me from Humboldt County, California. Julie had a wonderful reunion with her birth mother and has learned how the woman operates, which has helped Julie manage some of her own feelings in their reunion. But when Julie's birth mother admitted she'd had a one-night stand, Julie thought she'd never find her birth father. DNA testing helped her figure out that her birth father was one of two brothers, and one of them was so much like her, he had to be the guy. But was he? When the truth was discovered, Julie was left to maintain the family's secret. This is Julie's journey. Before we start, I have to give you a trigger warning. Near the end of the show, Julie is going to share part of her past that may be hard for some listeners to hear. When Julie told me she lives in Humboldt County, Northern California, I remarked how coincidental it was that another recent guest was also from way up north in California. Julie immediately said it was probably Danielle, last week's guest. You'll remember, she's the late Discovery adoptee who was overcome by the revelation that she was adopted in the middle of the night who was in reunion with her biological mother, who eventually ghosted her, and who drove 20 hours north into Canada to meet her birth father before he passed away eight weeks later. Julie said she and Danielle call one another sisters, and Danielle is her neighbor who lives only a few doors down from her. While they may be sisters, they have very different stories of adoption and reunion to tell. From Julie's earliest memories, her parents told her that she was adopted. Her parents divorced when she was two years old. Her mother remarried, and Julie grew up with her stepfather. Julie remembers that when she was old enough, she asked her mom about where her birth mother was. When I could have some thoughts about what it, you know, who my birth parents were, and started asking, and she said that they had both been killed in a car accident. Oh boy! And so, I remember sharing in in school. A show and tell, because I like to show and tell, and um, saying that my parents were killed in a car accident on the way to come get me. And that was just sort of imprinted in me as an early child. And then when I was 13, my mom, she, she was quite, you know, she used to drink a lot, and she'd actually, this is the 1970s, so she went and picked my friend up, and I think she'd been drinking a little bit. And my friend, when she came over, she said, your mom opened up to me and and told me that your parents are alive. Really? And, yeah, I was 13. She went to go pick her up to to have a sleepover. And she told me that my mom had told her that that they were actually alive. So your mom had been drinking. Is that correct? Yeah. And she just kind of got loose-lipped. Yeah. Yeah, with a friend of mine who was going to do a sleepover. What did you think when you heard that from your friend? Well, I was a little bit in disbelief. So I ended up going to visit my adopted father that summer, and I asked him point blank if that was true. Because I didn't want to ask my, my mom, because she was a little bit volatile, and I just didn't want to bring that up. So I asked my adopted dad when I went to visit him, and he had said that that was true, and he didn't want to rock any boats, but they were alive. So I was able to get confirmation. Really interesting. So this confirmation, what did that feel like for you? Because you've been lied to. Right, right. So, I mean, there was a little bit of hope, actually, that they weren't dead, and so that was sort of reassuring at the time and and so i always at 18 wanted to find 
who they were. And then, and then of course you have these fantasies as an adoptee, like, Oh, I wonder what my mother's like. And I really focused on, you know, wanting to find my mother. That was my main goal. I, I didn't really even think about finding my birth father. I really wanted to find my mother. And um, eventually as a teenager, it came out to my adopted mother that I knew that she was around somewhere and alive. And I am, I don't remember her being upset or anything, but I do remember a conversation when she was brushing my hair that, you know, you have hair like your mother. So I um, started the fantasy of like who this person was. And that's so interesting because that would suggest that she had met her. Like I must, I would imagine you thought in the back of your mind, wait, how do you know that? Yeah, exactly. Julie was adopted from the Children's Home Society, so when she was 18 years old, she applied for her non-identifying information. It was info that her mom had recanted. It said Julie's birth mom was an artist, had taken art classes, and had some interesting hobbies. Julie said it was pretty powerful to read even the non-identifying information about the woman who brought her into this world. Julie signed a waiver for the state of California, indicating that if anyone came looking for her, her records would be open so that hopefully she could be found. Nearly 10 years later, in 1995, another adoptee gave Julie the contact information for a detective who was able to access birth records and provide Julie with her birth mother's maiden name. The woman was operating covertly, helping adoptees start finding their truth for $150. At 27 years old, Julie decided it was time for her to find her birth mother. And so I used a little bit of my financial aid money and I called this detective and about two weeks later, she called and left a message on my answering machine. And she, she said on the answering machine, I have your birth mother's name, please give me a call. And at that same moment, that same exact moment, there was a letter for me that had arrived in the mail. And I said, gosh darn it, I got to call this lady back and it's going to cost me money. <laughs> so I opened this letter and it was a letter from my birth mother looking for me oh my gosh. at that same second. It wasn't the next day. It wasn't even that evening. It was that same moment. And it was like everything just came together. Wow. And, uh, That's unbelievable. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, so which did you do first? Did you call back or did you open the letter? Well, at first I was like upset because now I had to pay $150 to the detective. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. That's so funny. But, um, yeah. Um, so yeah, of course I opened the letter first and, um, and then all her information was said about her life and how, you know, she had been looking for me and it was that I had signed that waiver that she was able to find me. And she was able to sort of have a friend in the DMV that looked the other way and was able to find my information from my um, driver's license. So it was like two people sort of ignoring the rules to make things happen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so what's interesting actually is the letter was, was mailed to my adopted mom and she had forwarded it to me and didn't even open it. So I was really glad for that. Wow. Had you told yeah. your adopted mother that you had signed this waiver? Like, did she even know you were on this journey? No, uh -uh, she didn't know at all. No. Wow, that's very lucky. And I didn't, yeah, and I didn't tell her until like almost 10 years later. Wow. So yeah. what does the letter say? It said that that she had a family. I still have it, actually. And that she never stopped thinking about me. And, you know, and then if it wasn't me, for me to go ahead and forward it back to her so that she knew it was the right person. Because I have a really common name. Yeah. And she, you know, just that she was open to meeting me and that she never stopped thinking about me and that she had three other children and, you know, that she was young. Um, you know, she was 19 when she gave me up for adoption and that it was really a difficult decision for her. 
and that she was open and inviting me to reach out to her and that she wanted to have a meet Wow! eventually if that was what I was comfortable with. How did you feel reading those words and all the rest of that stuff? I was really blown away. And, you know, I think what, when it really hit hard was when I called later that evening and my sister, my half sister answered the phone and she sound, she, her voice sounded like mine. Wow. Oh my gosh. It makes me cry still. And I think I even started crying to the sister and she was only like 15 or 16 at the time, you know, cause my mom had three kids and she, she, she later told my mom, she just wanted to hug me, but my mom was at home and I said, Oh my God, you sound just like me, my voice. And it was the first time that I had that connection with family in all those years. And I was 27 years old and I could hear something that resembled myself. It was really powerful to hear somebody else's voice sound like your own mm-hmm. on the it's, phone. It's like looking into or listening into, as it were, a, a mirror, right? It's not you you're looking at, but it's someone you're related yeah. to. And so the validation of, of sounding like this person is like, wow, I'm. this is right. This is the right place. The call I've made is to the right people. It's It's got to be so fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it was. And then... You know, my mom, I think, was out bowling or something, and then she ended up um, maybe calling me the next day, and then we had really long conversations, and she ended up paying for me to come come see her um, shortly after that. Wow. What, so yeah. at what age are you when this happened again? I was 27, so she was 46. Okay. And now, now I'm 54, and we're closer than ever. Wow. Yeah, what, yeah. We uh, still have a really good relationship. Twenty-seven years later, Julie's birth mother paid for her plane ticket to fly from Northern to Southern California. On the plane, Julie told the woman next to her why she was traveling, which made the lady excited. She said it sounded like an Oprah story was unfolding right in front of her. Julie's birth mother had sent photos of herself in their correspondence back and forth. So when Julie got off the plane. She knew exactly who she was looking for. So I got off and, and of course, you know, she gave me a big hug. And so she was um, warm and embracing. And, you know, we talked, you know, most of the night and she showed me photos of herself and she was very open. And I met my siblings, not all of them, but my sister was still living with her. And then my other, my other sister and brother were already out of the house by, by then. But I had talked to them on the phone quite a bit before I came to visit. Mm-hmm. And so that was interesting. They didn't know I existed until she started looking for me. And I think she was afraid to tell them when they were growing up. And then she got a divorce from her husband, their father, and she opened up to them. And she was watching a lot of those Oprah shows and, you know, people reuniting, and it probably sparked something in her. Mm. And then she, I think she had sort of hidden that part of her life because she, you know, went on to start this new life with this man and have three kids. And then when they divorced, it all sort of broke apart. And while she was in that state, that's when she reached out to me and told them. And they were by then able to understand more. They were teenagers. Yeah. Yeah. So what yeah. was it like to sit there with these folks and, and just be in the company of your birth mother and your half-siblings? So I still remember it the next day after I'd arrived. My mom was on her bed and we were watching television together. And I actually... I actually fell asleep next to her for like a couple of hours. And I think she might have fallen asleep too. And I just think about that. Like, it was almost like I was kind of going back into the womb in a way. I mean, it was like this really comfortable place. And I was just next to her, even though I just met her the day before. There was this comfortable way of like being next to her and, and taking a nap. So I thought that was really interesting 
after meeting somebody that you would feel that comfortable that you could just actually just fall asleep. And I'm not a nap person either. I don't like to take naps. Yeah. That is really Um, fascinating. You're right. I mean, there's something to the, like, exhaustion, (laughs) the emotional exhaustion of, (laughs) you know, being around somebody, um, you know, because you're, you can be on edge. Like you're looking at them, they're looking at you, you're wondering what questions you can ask, you're wondering where all the siblings are, and what are we going to do next, and if, is this going well, and and if it if it's all going fine, and you feel relaxed enough to let your guard down, for you guys to sort of pass out like that is really, really kind of cute, that's awesome. During the visit, Julie got to see some old photos of her birth mother, which she loves, because Julie really enjoys old photos anyway. They went out to dinner one night, and Julie's half-brother joined them. He just says what's on his mind. He goes, this is weird. That weekend, her brother was having a christening for one of his kids. So Julie got to be part of a family event, and that was really special for her. The family took a lot of photos together, and Julie noticed her siblings looking at her. I would make a lot of the same hand gestures as they would. They were, oh my gosh, look what she's doing. So they were, they were looking at me as much as I was looking at them. That's unbelievable. It's so funny when you discover those little things that are natural to your family that you didn't know were commonalities between you. You know, that, yeah. that hand gesture thing is really innate, you know, it's and unique to certain people, for example. And for you to finally uh-huh. be around folks that are doing the same thing you're doing, that must have been just so interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because at that age, 27 years old, um, I look so much like my mom in that my siblings and family would tell me, you look more like our mom than we do. Wow. But later... And, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about this. When I finally met my birth father's family, I actually look like them a lot more. Yeah. And I don't know if it was because of the way I aged or. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) It's just amazing. It really is. It's so crazy. I remember when I first met my biological mother. I was staring at her face and it was like looking at my face on a woman. And it was just so weird to me. And she said. You know, I sent the picture that we took that first day we met to my friends and people were like, oh, yeah, that's your son. Right. Because we look alike. And then uh-huh. years later, after she passed, I found my biological father and I got to meet him for the first time. And we someone my wife took a picture of me, m- him and my son, Seth. And when I looked at the picture of us afterwards, I then could see our resemblance. I couldn't see it when I looked at him. But when we uh-huh. smiled in that picture, I could see it. And I was like, oh, my God, I look like him, too. This is crazy. So it was real. It's, I know what you're saying. It's super weird to be like, oh, my God, I look like both of these people a lot. <laughs> really? Awesome. Yeah, I actually I actually look a lot like my birth father's mother more than any of the grandchildren. Julie has said she's had a wonderful relationship with her birth mother. But there was a time when they weren't in close contact. What she described happens a lot in Reunion. The adoptee feels like the communications and outreach should be more even and reciprocal. But when it feels unbalanced, the adopted person sometimes takes it personally and withdraws as well. There was a period of time that I didn't talk to my birth mother because she wasn't reaching out to me. And I didn't really visit her. And she had come to my wedding in 2003 and that was interesting, too, because she finally was outed to my adopted mom. So everybody knew but my adopted mom that I had found my birth mother for years. And so I met my birth mom in 95, and I didn't tell my adopted mom until 2003 because my birth mom wanted to come to my wedding, and she was insistent on it. And she goes, well, you better tell your mom because I'm coming So I eventually sat her down, like everyone else knew in the family that I had found her, but I eventually sat her down and told her that I, um, that my birth mother was coming to the wedding and she didn't take it very well, but she was okay with it by then. You know, I'm 35 years old by then. So my birth mother actually kind of forced the issue. And I think she, she probably wanted me to tell her anyway. Um, And she wanted to meet her. And thank her for raising me. Mm-hmm. 
And so it was a really good opportunity for her. And I didn't want any drama in my wedding, of course. But I went ahead and told my adopted mom. And it was so interesting to finally see them meet. And a lot of people knew the story, so they were all watching. <laughs> Just It was after I'd actually said my vows and everything. It was at the reception. And my adopted mom meets her. And she said to my birth mother, you're not taking her home. And my birth mother said this perfect thing. She said, I think her husband is. <laughs> Good for her. And that was it. And then after that, my birth mom and I sort of lost touch, like I said. And then I, I got to do a public affairs detail, actually, in Southern California, just down the way from her. And we didn't have any bad feelings towards each other. We just sort of kind of lost touch. I didn't really visit her. And so I'd gone down to Southern California. And I thought, you know, this is a good time because I was there for, I was going to be there for a month. I said, this is a good time to kind of reconnect with her. And so we did. We started reconnecting, and this was 2016. So on the weekends, I would stay with her. And then once once a week, we'd have dinner together. And so every year now, I go down there. And I had made up this story that she didn't want anything to do with me because she wasn't reaching out to me, and she wasn't making the effort, and she wasn't flying to see me. So why bother? Mm -hmm. And so I sort of made up this story. And then she had given away one of a painting that I had given her to a workmate because it didn't go with her collection in her office. And so it really hurt, you know, the last time I had seen her. So, you know, you and she had also told me that if abortion was legal, that she would have gone that route. So she had said a couple hurtful things, yeah. but she's a very blunt person. She just is that way. And she doesn't actually reach out to her own kids. Her own kids are always reaching out to her. She's a bit of a workaholic. Uh -huh. And so I had mentioned when I was down for that work detail to my youngest sister that mom gave away my painting and she was like, what? And my mom said, no, 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 I didn't give it away. And so it was like revealed that month when I was down there that maybe she wasn't actively just not interested in me. It's just kind of the way she was. And that if I was to have a relationship, that it was that it was going to have to be me making some effort. It's not like when I do go down there that she just doesn't care or anything like that. She definitely is very reciprocal. She always tells me she loves me, and she always is happy when I call her, and she always ties me into her life as much as she can. It's just, you know, it's a little bit of her character not to reach out even to her own family sometimes. Mm -hmm. But when and you don't so, know that going in, yeah. you have to create uh -huh. your own narrative. Or, or you do, right. whether you have to or not. You just It just happens. And and that's kind of the dangerous space is that you start to create distance because you're like, oh, this person's not reaching out to me. And, and it feels like a, a rejection or something like that. And you end up creating space that actually they weren't interested in. They were perfectly fine. You just didn't know that that was how they are. It's funny that that happens to people. Yeah, and I think, you know, as you know, as an adoptee, you have that rejection-sensitive way about yourself. I mean, you were rejected from birth, basically. Julie's birth mother told her the story of her conception. She and a girlfriend had left the valley of Southern California and were walking along the beach when a small group of guys approached and said, Hey, we're having a party. Why don't you guys join us? Everyone had been drinking, and then it got late, so the girls decided to stay over. Julie's birth mother was invited to share a bed for the night with her birth father. Julie's mother woke up the next morning and left before the young man awoke. She didn't even know his name, but six weeks later, she found herself pregnant. It was 1968 or 67 when she was probably pregnant, and I wasn't born until 68, and she found out she was pregnant and she immediately told her parents, her stepmother, that she was moving in with her older sister because she knew how shameful it was. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a lot of shame, she yeah. said. Yeah. So she said basically, like, I'm sorry, you don't, you're not going to ever know who he is. So it was a little heartbreaking. Yeah, that must have been rough to know that there's this dude out there that she doesn't even know who it is, like literally can't give you a clue. 
When Ancestry DNA hit the commercial market, Julie submitted a DNA sample in the hopes of finding a genetic match on her paternal side of the family. While she waited for her closest DNA connection to pop up in her own results, Julie helped quite a few other people solve some of the mysteries of their own families. She's a historian, so her natural affinity for investigating facts from the past proved valuable to others. The practice of building trees off of distant fourth cousin matches honed Julie's skills for the day she got a second cousin match who had a well-developed tree already. Julie immediately wrote to the person, that cousin's wife, wrote back very quickly. The woman was a social worker, so her life's work was in service to others, so she opened up the family tree for Julie to dig through. Julie knew she was looking for a man who would have been about the same age as her birth mother was, walking down the beach in Southern California in the late 1960s. Tracing her way down her paternal great-grandparents' respective sides of the family tree to see who their children were, Julie could tell that on her great-grandfather's side, there was no male on the tree in the age range that could possibly be her birth father. She turned her focus to her paternal grandmother's side. There was only two possibilities, and they were brothers. So one was born in 48, the other one was 49. They were actually a year and a half apart. And in my 20s, I had moved away. I'm going to go back a little bit. In my 20s, I had moved away from Southern California to sort of the Central Coast because I'd worked at Hearst Castle and I'd worked in this little town of Cambria, which is like 4,000 people. And one of the brothers was living in Cambria. And I was like, oh my God, this has to be him. No, it's so crazy. Yeah, I'm like, what a small world. I mean, because I had lived there for five years. And now I was like 10 hours away. But And then I noticed that he had lived in Newport Beach and all these areas that that the area that I was conceived at. So I was like, oh, this has to be him. And so I actually wrote both the brothers. Now, a lot of people ask me at this point, like, did she sleep with both of them? No, it was just the two possibilities. Yeah, so, and they just happen to be brothers. Yeah, if you're doing yeah. DNA and a guy yeah. has a brother, you're naturally going to potentially be connected to one or both of them. Yeah, I, that makes total sense. Yeah. So anyway, and you know, I'm stabbing in the dark here. It's just, you know, in this tree um, that I've been give, given permission from, I have no concrete knowledge that either of these two are it, you know. But what I did at that point was I made one of them, my father, in the tree. As soon as I did that, as soon as I put that person in, like, as if, okay, okay, so we're going to do a science experiment here. This person's going to be my father. And I'm going to see how the DNA matches shake out now. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to look at their tree. And sure enough, everything started lining up with their surname so i knew i was on the right path and there was nobody else in the tree that could have been you know that age like i said so i wrote both of them and i i got nothing for like a month and it was heartbreaking because you know i was so excited i was like i finally get to meet my birth father and and by this time i was really ready in life to meet him and you know like i said when i was growing up it was my birth mom was you know, all I thought about, but now I was really focused on finding my birth father. Why was because it I knew that time I was... in your life you were ready to meet him? What was it about where you were in life? So I was like 50, I was, you know, and I had things figured out. I wasn't so, you know, I, I had a really good, I still do, a strong sense of self. And I was, I think, ready for rejection if it needed to happen. I was a little bit stronger. I had healthy boundaries. I had a sense of not needing anybody. I wasn't so needy. I mean, I wasn't really needy with my mom, but. You sound like you had, what you're summarizing is sort of maturing into your own adult. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. I'd matured into my own adulthood, but it was heartbreaking the same when I wasn't hearing anything back. Julie wasn't getting any response from the two men, Paul and Charlie, but she was really focused on Paul, the brother that had lived in Cambria, just like she had years ago. 
her sleuthing uncovered an email address for Paul's ex-wife. The woman said that her divorce from Paul was really rough several years prior, but she was still willing to help Julie's journey along. Julie and the woman exchanged emails. She sent photos of herself to the woman, who showed Julie's pictures to her friends, who all knew Paul from when she was married to him, and they agreed on the family resemblance. The woman emailed back a picture of Paul when he was a young man. And I still remember, like, opening the email with my husband and my friend. We were actually at a brewery at the time. And my friend goes, oh, my God, you're going to see your birth father right now. And she's standing right there. And I look and I go, holy shit. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) so it's the whole... (laughs) feeling like you know just the cheekbones and the way my face is and and I was like that's him I was blown away and it was just it was incredible to see his face and then you know not get a response from him still so there was a you know one day um I was with a friend and I was just going crazy I couldn't work I couldn't think I couldn't I couldn't do my life because that's all I was focused on was like, how is this person going to respond to me? I needed some kind of closure or something to happen. And so he told me, he said, Julie, you're solid. You you have everything going for you. Just call him. <laughs> just call him. Yeah. And I was like, I'm terrified. It just, it was so terrifying. I said, oh, my God, this is the most terrifying thing of my life to call him. (laughs) And um, so I end up calling Paul, and he answers. And I had sent him a letter, like a certified letter, so I know he got it. And he um, didn't check his email. He's not one of those people. I said, I think I'm your daughter. And he goes, no, no, it's not me. And I said, oh, okay. And I was really about to hang up. I said, thanks for your time. And he goes, what's your life like? And I just got really, like, nervous. And we ended up having an hour-long conversation where he told me his whole life story, his family. And the more I talked to him, the more I said, oh, my God, you're my birth father. And I said that to him. And he goes, no, I'm not. I did not sleep with your mother. He kept saying that. And, um, you know, Paul was the black sheep in the family. He didn't have any relations with his siblings, his two sisters and his brother. He was in a lot of physical pain. He was in mental pain. He was he was on Oxycontin. He was going through a really difficult time in his life. He ended up like crying to me on the phone and he was a bit of a mess, basically. Wow. But he was willing to tell me his whole story and whether he was my birth father or his brother, I was getting the, a story, and I was just happy to hear something. Even though this person was a mess, I was just happy to hear something about my family, that I knew I had come to the right place, whether it was him or his brother that was actually my birth father. I was hearing some story, a story about my life, yeah. about who, who I belonged to. Amazing. Had you yeah. told him the story that your birth mother had told you, like try to put him in the same time frame on the, in that location. Yeah. Cause he had actually lived where I was conceived at one point, but when he was younger, he did a lot of drinking and he did a lot of drugs. So he said, I had a girlfriend during that time and I wouldn't have left. I wouldn't have cheated on her, which I didn't really believe him. And then he said, and plus I wasn't, I wasn't old enough. I wasn't 18. I didn't have sex until I was 18. I said, actually, you were 18 when I was born. You were actually 19 when I was born. Mm-hmm. And then he says, oh, okay. So I kind of spread doubt in his, because, I mean, you're talking 50 years ago mm-hmm. in somebody's memory that's been, you know, sort of this black sheep, probably dabbled in a lot of alcohol. Yeah. The memory is questioned. The drugs. Yeah. Yeah. And um, he's, you know, he's on Oxy. And so I remember, you know, uh, uh, after talking to him, I talked to my boss about it. And he goes, don't, don't let this man into your life. <laughs> you know, 
this could be a bad flag. And then his wife was telling me the same thing. Like, he's not like a really great person. So, and then I talked to my therapist and my therapist actually was like, I think this is good for you, Julie. Cause I, I, I had been abused growing up like really badly by my stepfather and my adopted mother. So this was nothing compared to what I had actually been raised with. And I was, there was some kind of connection that he saw. So he saw it as something positive, my therapist. And my therapist said, don't call him anymore. Wait till he calls you. He has your phone number. Wait till he calls you. And so I waited about a month. And the day before Thanksgiving, I was like, on just like, oh, my God, you know. And by this time, it was almost two months after I'd found him. And I just left work, and he called me. And I had actually, like, put his name in my contacts. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so his name pops up, and I'm just so excited. And then we ended up, he said, Julie. And I said, yeah. And he said, this is Paul. And... I said, hi, Paul. And I was so nervous. And he said, where did you grow up? And I said, oh, I grew up in San Bernardino. He goes, I used to run marijuana down there when I was in the 60s. And then, boom, <laughs> that's how the conversation started. Oh and ever since then, which is like four years ago, we've been talking nonstop. And we talked like for maybe two hours after that, like that initial, again, conversation. And he just said, okay, it just never came up again, whether he was my father or not. He didn't admit to it. And then about a week later, I just said, I have to see you. So I ended up driving down to Cambria and um, knocking on his door. And by then, you know, he, he didn't look like the photo that his wife had sent me. He, he, and I'd stared at that photo, like imprinted myself on that photo because it was like 20 years before. And he, and he has this big booming voice. And I ended up actually writing a poem about it because it was like Oz and I was Dorothy and I was, and he was the big man behind the curtain, you know? That is such an interesting <laughs> image. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, he really does have that big booming voice and he opens the door and here's this little man like not much bigger than I am (laughs) (laughs) and he looks at me and he goes you are my daughter and then he just holds me and gives me this hug and then says okay let's get your luggage I ended up staying there for like four days and it was like you know falling in love really it was like just hearing and and he, we had so much in common and history and art and we went to the castle and where I'd worked and he actually knew my boyfriend. Julie stayed with Paul for several days. She said it was like falling in love, spending the time that spending time with this man she had sought for so long, listening to their common interests, and they even took a trip to the castle where Julie had worked before. It turned out that Paul knew Julie's boyfriend back then when she worked there. Paul basically said, yeah, that guy owes me 20 bucks. Julie tracked down her old boyfriend and mailed him a letter that basically said, You have to know who you were looking at, who you were friends with. That is my birth father. And he ended up calling me and we were like, oh my God. He goes, Julie, he's just like us. Of course he's your birth father. That is nuts. I mean, that is, that's an indication of how close you guys were to actually knowing each other without knowing who one another were. Yeah, and what's interesting, though, is Paul didn't live there at the time when I lived there. So he wasn't in that little town. He had moved there 10 years after I had left. But he gravitated towards the same people that I did in that little town. That's just unbelievable. Yeah. But the story doesn't end there. <laughs> So what Um, happens next then? So I ended up connecting with his sisters and not his brother, though. So his brother, I had found out, was a lawyer, had a law firm, didn't talk to anyone, really. Very private, never got back to me. You know, somebody that I was actually a little intimidated by. 
And so I'd come to visit Paul again and um, making several trips. And I said, Paul, you know, we should really hash this out, like, and just confirm that you're my father. Because at that point, I didn't know. And so he did a swab test and we sent it in. And then we went to see my grandmother, who was actually turning 94. She had had a stroke, but so she couldn't really talk, but she could understand. And so we went to a rest home and I met with my aunt and I met with my grandmother, which was amazing. She's 94. And Paul tells her, you know, that, you know, this is my daughter. And it was just so special. And then I meet the brother, actually. And he's like looking at me at the corner of my eye and smiling. And and I'm like, wow, this doesn't seem right. Like, why is he? It seems like he would be much more protective of the family because he's a lawyer and he loves lots of money and things like that. Mm -hmm. So we had a great time. I was accepted. And the sisters, of course, were hugging me. And Charlie, you know, he was in the background. So my aunt, before I was about to leave, she said, we just wanted to tell you that we're just proud to call you our niece. And um, it just made me cry, you know. And they were just, yeah, it was so touching. And I'm about to turn around and leave, just, you know, grab my stuff. And Charlie, who's this, you know, sort of removed person, he ends up putting his arms around me and just hugging me really tight. And then I got back in the car to take Paul home. And I said, you know, your brother hugged me. And he goes, yeah, everybody loves you. But you know what? He doesn't hug. He's not like that. Right. That's a that's pretty weird. Like I said, yeah, that's pretty amazing. He goes, yeah, everybody loves you, Julie. So I ended up, you know, going back home, taking Paul home, and I look at my email, and Paul is not my father. Oh gosh. Yeah. Oh man, and you've really connected with this dude. Yeah, and I and um he had he had told me, you know what? I don't care what the DNA says. You're my daughter, <laughs> and don't tell me any different, because <laughs> I don't want to know. <laughs> and so I was just like, oh my gosh, you know, I was heartbroken because I connected so much with him. And I said, it's Charlie. He's my birth father. And then it all flashed back to the hug and the sort of the looks out of the corner of the eye. And I said, oh, my gosh, you know, it's actually the the other guy. So I didn't tell Paul. Yeah, I didn't. I, I still haven't told him. <laughs> really? Wow. And Paul actually ended up moving. He's, he's getting dementia, so my husband and I have really adopted him. He doesn't do Oxy anymore. His whole life was transformed by meeting me. He said it was the best thing that's ever happened to his life. Oh, my God. I'm his buddy. He's, like, healed tremendously, like, just from meeting us. He's gotten a second chance in life. I mean, he has a family that he didn't have before because there was just so much past history you know he he wasn't a great brother and so they see that and my grandmother just died and we went to the funeral and I had written Charlie several times and I said look I know who you are I know that you're my father and he's never denied it he remembers wow. I'm pretty sure he remembers everything or remembers at least you in this situation yeah yeah so, I mean, he remembers 50 years ago because, you know, he probably remembers meeting my mom. It might have been the first time he ever had sex or something. But he, I think he remember. I, I don't know for sure because he doesn't really talk to me about it. But, you know, over the years, I've tried to write him letters because he doesn't respond. And then he responded once and I was so happy, you know, with a one sentence. That's kind of how he is. And then um, I would write, him and I, I actually pushed the envelope a year ago and I was like, I want to see you, Charlie. I want to just have lunch with you. And I, I just, I just need to talk to you. I just need to have a conversation with you. And he said, my life is complicated. I just don't have time for that in my life. I'm sorry. I don't answer your emails. And that was it. And like, so he controls like 
the trust my grandmother just died so he actually has to go through me to get to paul so we do communicate a little bit because i'm taking care of his brother and he trusts me i mean he you know there's nothing not to trust but it's clear that he knows that i'm his daughter he just doesn't it's too messy for him he's like belongs to a country club you know, he's multi, multi-millionaire, and he has two sons. And I actually got to meet them at the funeral in November. But they had no idea who um, you were. They have no idea who I am. Or or at least they think you're Paul's daughter, not their yeah, sister. Every, yeah, everybody in the family, that's the story that they're told, is that I'm Paul's daughter. I haven't told anyone in the family mm, because I don't want to hurt him. God, that's tough. You're living yeah. an open secret. That's really surreal. How does, yeah. it, how does it feel to live this open secret? It's just life. Like you want things to have some kind of closure and neat homecoming, like what I did with my mom. Like that's what I expected with my birth father. And it just wasn't that neat. And that's how life is. And it's stranger than fiction. That's what I tell everyone. <laughs> yeah, like, that's right. I mean, this is story material, the twists and turns. And and I know that there's more to the story that will come out. And maybe I will get sort of some closure with the brother after, you know, if my dad dies first. I always call Paul my dad. And it's interesting, too, because, you know, he's my uncle, and he's my dad. I call him dad. He's not actually my birth father. And so as adoptees, that's kind of how we're raised anyways. Like, you know, the people that we raise, we call mom and dad. They're not actually your, you know, birth parents. And so it's like a continuation of that story as well, even though he is my uncle. Not my dad, though. But he is my dad now. I mean, and both my adoptive parents are gone now. They're both dead. And all I have now are my birth parents yeah. in my life oh, as my gosh. family. Have you told so. your birth mother that this is this situation is happening on the paternal side, that you've got this mistaken identity, but that you've accepted Paul as your dad, etc.? Does she know? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't tell her the whole story for a while. I think I waited like a few months because I just wanted I didn't want her to doubt me. Um, like, oh, well, then who is your father? Because she doesn't really remember what he looked like. And so her friend was like saying, well, too bad it's not the millionaire. And I was like, well, mom, actually, you know, you did. <laughs> you with the millionaire. And she goes, you know what? That makes sense because I had a boyfriend named Paul and I would I would have remembered that name. And so she goes, yeah, that makes sense. So now she's accepted it and I think it was hard for her, though, because it brought up a lot of her issues when I first met him, you know, because it was sort of this neat thing for her, you know, that was closed, you know, you'll never find him. You know, she didn't have to revisit that again. Yeah. And I think she had to revisit it all over again. Yeah, so, and she didn't really express that to me so much because she's sort of that way, but she was a little quiet about it for a while. And so I said, you know, when Paul dies, I'm going to, I'm going to tell my brother's um, that I'm their sister, and she goes, you know what? Why? They don't care. Men don't care who they who their birth family is. Oh gosh, she's so wrong about and, that. Uh, <laughs> so very yeah. Wrong. She goes, they're probably not going to even care who you are. Why bring it up? And so sometimes I have doubts about that. Like, well, maybe I'll never tell them. So no, I don't know. I think you'll when you revisit yeah. it. You know when that eventuality happens and you revisit it, your gut will tell you the, the right thing for yeah. you. Because it's also not yeah. about everybody else, right? Like, you should consider their feelings, and you'll see what the situation is with them at that time. But right. I think when you give consideration to where you are and what you need and living with the truth, you'll arrive at the decision that's right for you. Yeah, it, it, that's how life has been yeah. For me. At this point, I asked Julie if it was okay if we went back for a moment. While talking about meeting and connecting with Paul, Julie said she was abused by her adoptive mother and stepfather. 
She shared that her adoptive mother said she adopted Julie to save her marriage to her first husband. The marriage was on the rocks, and two years after Julie's adoption, the pair divorced. After the divorce, their family, including Julie's older brother, the divorced parent's biological son, kind of bounced around searching for stability. There was some unhealthy behavior going on with men who drank a lot, so Julie's brother was her protector. Eventually, Julie's adoptive mother met a man with a house and a steady job at a bar one night. This is your trigger warning for what you're about to hear. He welcomed us in, and to my brother, he was so happy. He didn't have to be that protector. It was like life was good, and you know, now we're in a stable situation and I can relax and be, you know, a kid. But my stepdad, you know, however great and stable and secure he was, there was a secret with him in that starting from an early age, he started molesting me as a young girl. Mm. And it was horrible. I don't have any contact with him anymore. I, I had to go through years of therapy, which I'm still going through to reconcile with all that and you know I don't talk to my brother that I grew up with because he was like how do I don't want to choose sides you know because he wanted my brother wanted to continually believe that that this stepdad was a good guy that he saved us so it didn't match up with his story and so he was like I'm not gonna even know you anymore so I actually don't have any family at all and so to meet my birth father was so healthy for me because I had had this narcissistic father that was, you know, sort of grooming me and, you know, nice on one end and like playing with me. But then on the other end, he was like completely, you know, sexually abusing me. Mm. So my wires were all crossed in my head about men's attention and men's love. And so here was Paul who was just happy. I mean, I was a little worried, actually. Like, is he going to try and do something? I mean, really, this all came across. Like, when I went down there to visit him, and yeah. is he going to try and hit on me? And so it was a lot of trust and vulnerability that I was willing to put myself through, opening up all those old wounds as well. And being vulnerable, I think, is really key in this story, like with other people as adoptees, like when you find your parents, like I think that's why Charlie never actually reached back because he doesn't want to be vulnerable. And Paul was okay with being vulnerable because it's really putting yourself out on a limb. And, you know, there's, especially after 50 years of, you know, um, abuse and trauma and baggage and, you know, being vulnerable and being able to trust somebody again is huge. So, wow. Yeah. I'm sorry that that was your experience. And I appreciate you sort of opening up about that piece because there are other adoptees out there who have that experience. And it's uh -huh. important for everyone to feel they're not alone, right? This didn't just happen to me. And that there are other survivors out there who are making their way. And as you've said, like you're a person now who has reached sort of self-confidence and sounds like some self-worth. And it's imp I, I believe it's important for others to hear this example. So I'm, I appreciate yeah. you sharing that part. And I'm so sorry. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I've worked through a lot of demons and I can't have a relationship at all with my stepfather. I haven't talked to him in probably over 10 years now. Yeah. And then my adopted mom didn't really know. I think she did know, but she kept wondering why isn't Julie visiting before she died and stuff. And I was like, well, you need to ask your husband. And then I told my stepdad, like, you need to tell mom that what you did. And so he ended up telling her what happened. Did he really? So that, yeah, yeah. You know that for a fact? Yeah, yeah, he told me. So. Well, he told you, but he also groomed you. Yeah. So do you trust him? Yeah, because she never really tried to reach out again. And, you know, when you're when you're actually that morning when he told me, I had had a dream 
that he had told her. <laughs> so it was a visceral level, like almost a psychic thing. Like wow. just, you know, how I, yeah, yeah. So um, I, I just felt it in my bones. But, you know, I don't know for sure. But yeah, I assume so. He was extremely apologetic, which is pretty rare, actually. You know, so a lot of um, people that are abused, like there's a lot of denial that happens, especially on their end. And, you know, they're like, oh, you're crazy. They try to make you out to be the crazy one but he said i accept full responsibility i should not have done that so that was really nice to put that shame back on him that's great and yeah and i worked through a lot of therapy to do that that's really good to hear because then you don't have to continue living with it as yeah you, said, you put it back on him yeah he owns it now not you yep good for you yeah yeah. Wow, Julie. Unbelievable. What you have lived through. Oh my gosh. Absolutely unreal. But I I'm amazed, you know, because you're you've been holding secrets, it sounds like, your whole life. And and managing these paternal relationships. Relationship might not be the best word for your early life, but just managing how you see men. And how you have to interact with them, both, you know, sort of in locating your biological father as well as like how you've had to manage or cut off to preserve your space, your relationship with your stepfather. I mean, it's just really fascinating. Wow. You know, and I think and that's probably the most difficult. You talked about secrets. I'm still holding a secret in a way. Yeah. That's right. Because um, the family doesn't know actually who the father is and 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 my aunt did ask me you know at dinner one time she in front of everybody she said did you find out the the test or did you find out whether paul was your father or not and i said you know it actually it's kind of confusing susan um it could be either charlie or paul and she goes well it's not charlie he wouldn't have done that he was in college you know it's got to be paul plus he you know charlie has a family and she said, it's best for the family. <laughs> you know, basically, she's like, it's best for the family if you're Paul's daughter. Wow. And so I didn't like that very much. <laughs> yeah, that's not cool. What the hell? It's like, wait you a know, minute. I'm thinking just... to myself, but wait a minute. I am family, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I know. I don't get to be a pawn, you know? My other cousins didn't get to be, like, shuffled around. Yeah. Well, we actually want you over here, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they were on the just... team over there. What? That's ridiculous. <laughs> so I didn't really like that. But she's a wonderful support in our relationship with Paul. He, she's very supportive and... And then I ended up getting confirmation, actually, that, you know, because, like, if Paul's not my father, are you sure it's Charlie? I mean, it could be somebody else. I mean, I look just like everybody. Mm. So I ended up having Paul do Ancestry. So he actually spit into a, a vial like I did. And then his DNA was so high that he's close family. So he ranks out as as, as enough DNA to be my uncle. Wow. So it's positive. Yeah. Unbelievable confirmation of the secret you have to keep crazy yep. wow julie thank you so much for being here with me today i really appreciate it i just i'm in awe yeah. of your story as i am so many other adoptee stories <laughs> it's really unbelievable but i'm thank also you. i stand in admiration of your strength too because you've been through a lot and you sound just really strong here in this part and i'm, I'm glad for that and i look forward to hearing what happens when unfortunately paul will leave us one day and what you decide to do so yeah exactly yeah. all right you take care all the best to you all right julie all right thanks bye-bye bye hey it's me julie's reunion with her birth mother while filled with love left her believing that the one night stand that created her would keep her birth father's identity locked away when DNA testing finally linked her to her paternal family, Julie found Paul, whom she felt so connected to, the pair assumed he was her birth father, not his brother, Charlie. Today, she lives with the huge family secret that, that the man she cares for in her own home and loves like a father is her uncle. It was hard to hear about her stepfather's transgressions and how they impacted Julie's thoughts going into reunion with Paul. 
Thankfully, she's had years of therapy to help her reach the position of strength she holds today because if she hadn't, she might not have been able to hold it all together to care for him in her home. I hope Charlie comes around to openly acknowledging Julie one day because if she was the best thing that ever happened to Paul, she's likely to be one of the best things that ever happened to Charlie too. I'm Damon Davis, and I hope you found something in Julie's story that inspired you, validates your feelings about wanting to search, or motivates you to have the strength along your journey to learn. Who am I really? If you would like to share your adoption journey and your attempt to connect with your biological family, please visit whoamireallypodcast.com slash share. You can follow the show at facebook.com slash really. If the show is meaningful to you, you can support me with a contribution to keep it going on patreon.com slash really. Please subscribe to Who Am I Really on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. It would mean so much to me if you took a moment to leave a five-star rating there. Those ratings can help others to find the podcast too. And you can check out the story of my adoption journey, Who Am I Really? An Adoptee Memoir on Amazon.com. I hope you'll add my story to your reading list.